Well, let's uh, ask the Lord's blessing. Dear Lord God, we're very grateful for this time in your word on a spring day. A lot of obligations lifted. We'd ask that you would uh, have us rest in your word, in your son's name. Amen. In case you missed the title on the sermon notes, the first letter of St. Paul to Timothy. It's not the whole book. Starting midway through chapter 3. But every so often, you know, when I, I keep records of what I preach on, um, and I, I, get, I get into this passage a lot in personal conversations. And so it's, it seems like, oh golly, I've been in it recently. It's been uh, five years uh, since it was in church here. And I was looking back at that sermon and the outline, and I was stressing different things I was, than I was thinking of this morning. But one thing that jumped out at me about this section is, uh, well, it comes in verse uh, 14 of chapter 3, right at the top. I hope to come to you soon. This is St. Paul writing to Timothy. But I'm writing these instructions to you so that if I am delayed, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and bulwark of the truth. He's telling Timothy how the Christian life, especially in the body of believers, the church, how it's supposed to be lived, how you ought to behave. Now, the phrase, how you ought to behave, it's a favorite of moms. That's your one toss-away line for Mother's Day. I don't think mothers come into this any other way. They're always thinking, how... Oh, my, my grandmother, Grandma Wilson, Dad's mom, who was an iron lady, raised six boys, and uh, she always said, be good, don't be like the other boys. Other boys, other than Wilson boys. Moms always want you to behave. Dads are always, you know, unless you're some, I don't some sort of awful example of a father dads are always more sort of hey yeah you can have a coke you know can I have a coke mom no dad yes candy yes chips yes moms wanted to have their kids behave and in one common area with moms in my life, as a pastor, I want Christians to behave. That's why I get up on Sunday morning and plan a sermon and show up here and hope somebody else shows up and tell them how to behave. How ought you go about your life? Now part of this, you know, right, this is right, verse 14, if, you're, if you have a Bible and you're right on the heels of this section... It comes right out of the qualifications for bishop, qualifications for deacon, verse 14, which I just read to you. This is how you ought to behave. And it's covered some other things um, on public prayer, on women, on a number of other things of, of spiritual moral value. How you ought to behave. Now, I want to... Uh, in staying close to St. Paul, Paul is expressing something that is 
of moment to him, not because he is uh, a famous pastor in a 2,000-year-old church. He's a brand new pastor in a brand new sect that nobody belongs to. Nobody, practically speaking, in the Roman world. He's not protecting some way the Christians go about things. He is expressing something that's on the heels of his acknowledgement of Jesus Christ as Lord. Because he says this, how we ought to behave in the household of God. You know, because the church is this great bulwark of the truth, and some people hone in on that comment, the pillar and bulwark of the truth, trying to get you to think more of the church than the truth. This church and every other church that serves Jesus Christ ought to be a protector of the truth, a pillar of it. It is not the, it is not the creator of it. It is not it, the truth itself. Because what he says in verse 16, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of our religion. He doesn't say what great churches we have. He doesn't say how big the cathedrals or how mega church the, end, uh, the attendance is. He talks about Jesus Christ. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Now a lot of people think that that phrasing, that poetic phrasing, was a part of an early Christian hymn. Um, whether it was or not is no, never mind. At least Paul is being poetically given to stating the greatness, not of the church, of Christ. He was manifested, vindicated, seen, preached, believed on, taken up. That is the greatness indeed of the truth we serve. Now you can't have you can't have this idea of how one ought to behave if you don't know what it is you are serving. Or, or how great it is, or how important it is, that which you are serving. It's a... And I don't want you to... What's his name? Bandana. Who's church here? Andrew. Andrew. Um, I care for the congregants. We show he had fought, one of the uh, programs for the Anglicans had fallen out of one of the hymnals, and he was showing it to me, and I was going, "Well, it was I, completely unrecognized. I mean, it was all wonderful truth, you know, the Lord's Prayer, various verses of Scripture." responsive reading. There didn't seem to be any sermon anywhere in it. But it was all about the Lord Jesus Christ. We're not trying to create, some people want to have the church create the moment which will give you a cause, whether you're a, a, a pew-jumping charismatic or whether you're a smells and bells sort of high church, uh, road to Rome sort of uh, Protestant. Whichever one you are, you counting on The dance we do, the, uh, the decorations we put on the truth, not, and, and it could be just as bad here. Be just, I didn't want to mention, you know, the pew jumping charismatic and the smells and bells 
uh, high church. Here we're that sort of informal, rationalist, um, completely, people who like accessibility. People who like accessibility and, uh, dare I mention, authenticity. Because we're artisanal, this church. We just got white walls, white steeple, no, no pictures in the windows. We're just generic. But some people like that, and that, that reaches some people. Is it that decoration? Not the truth of Jesus Christ. He was manifested. The presumption is that the life and the person of Christ is right in your frontal lobes, ready to fill any conversation, any circumstance you're in, because Christ is all in all. Manifested, vindicated, seen, preached, believed on, taken up. Whether that's a song, or whether it's a poem of Paul's origination. This is the greatness to which we pretend. This is the greatness that, you might say, lights a fire under the oughtness of our behaving. Not are you greater than St. Paul. I know some of you might have some quibbles with St. Paul about various things. We go earlier in this very book. It might be a great sermon, I think, preached by Evan Wilson many, a few years back. I think the theme of it was for women. Shut the heck up. That was the uh, takeaway. Some people don't like that. Some people don't like the magic of what we believe in Christ. A Jewish guy dies 2,000 years ago and it forgives our sins. Do we really need that? Don't we just need Jefferson's Bible where it's a talk about how good you can be? No, he was manifested. He was vindicated. He was seen. He was preached. He was believed on. And you believed in him and you was taken up. And in that, the oughtness of your behavior ought to have some, some legs to it. Do you believe this or not? I, again, if you don't, it doesn't bother me. I mean, it would be a little sad if I liked you a lot and you'd go to the bad place, but I, I, you're, you're making decisions for your life. If you don't want to be part of this faith, you'll be part of something else, but that does, you know, being wrong isn't, I don't have to fix everybody. I have to preach faithfully what is the truth. Now, as we go on, since the behavior of the believer in the church is what is being suggested, so when we would have someone coming up for office of deacon or bishop, we would go to this passage, the previous portion, we'd go through it. We want to be obedient to it. What guides us in our oughtness? It's not merely that Christ was manifest and vindicated and seen. What what drives us, and I don't want it just to be the tradition of the church, this group you joined, the group that you're a member of, um, has these traditions you've got to follow. How do you know that you're following good things? Because verse 1 of chapter 4 says, now what the Spirit expressly says, that in later times, some will depart from the faith by giving heed to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. 
through the pretensions of liars whose consciences are seared. It's, I can remember my dad going through this um, with junior high Bible study we had in Annapolis and, and uh, just leaning on these phrases. Deceitful spirits, teachings of demons, passed on to you by liars. I mean, this is, this is picking up sin every inch of the way, whatever this is. Um, this is not going to be good. And as we are thinking about how I ought to live, right? The, the message of every pastor and every mother is how ought we behave. In this case, in the household of faith. Well, we certainly don't want to behave under the influence of liars who pretend to be men of God, pretend to be teachers, who have no conscience left, they have no sense of right and wrong, who have picked up demonic doctrine. You know, like a rock and roll. Which, you know, I've been in Christian circles long enough to remember the Procter and Gamble um, logo controversy. Now, I'm sure there are other ones. I don't follow Christian culture much because I don't find myself edified in Christian culture. But people are pointing out deceitful spirits all the time. I think Winky Pratt may used to tell people that if you had any frog figurines in your house, any frog, little ceramic frog, you've invited demons into your house. Well, that should concern you. From what I understand, demons in your house are not a good thing. And here, he said, boy, later times, we're kind of later, we're late, 2,000 years later, this could be us. Deceitful spirits, doctrines of demons, pretentious liars who have no conscience left. And you kind of think they're the kind of godless religious people like the Anglicans the unbelieving Anglicans, who have homosexual bishops. Am I still allowed to say that in the country? I think so. Jail time, perhaps, but uh, nothing worse. Free love, pro-abortion, alcohol problems, big on marijuana, I mean, they're church people who are heading this direction, are this direction. As I've listed here, money, sex, drink, untucked shirts for men, <laughs> games, computers. That's what you know. You're, you're, you're basically, you have a, your Christian oughtness uh, decision on you. You have your back to the wall. You say, How, what, what, what am I supposed to do, Pastor? How am I supposed to live? And the pastor is supposed to say, Avoid these bad things. But that's not what Paul's worried about. These demonic doctrines who, from pretentious liars, verse 3, who forbid marriage. And enjoin abstinence from foods. What? I thought we were supposed to be slinging bottles of vodka around going, let's all get plowed. That's the kind of bad doctrinal, demonic doctrine that you'd expect to hear. 
But now, demonic doctrine, demonic influence on your pastor, is the guy who draws a much clearer line. A much clearer line of how you ought to behave. When the question, how ought you behave, I was reading with somebody, what's my son's name? Gun. Um, he had his uh, apocryphal New Testament uh, Oxford has out. I was reading through it in something. The Apocalypse of John, something like that, some strange book. The guy with death on marriage. Absolute celibacy, chastity. The biggest thing was don't touch. No touchy. Don't get meridy. Don't do this stuff. Very early, in the second century. Forbid marriage. Paul was ready for it. He said, Timothy, watch out for these guys. They're demonic. They'd be happy to draw a line because people who want to be religious are ready for lines to be drawn. And they sort of imagine that it's going to be a sacrifice. How many of you have thought of the mission field at some point going, you know, I really I don't want to go, but that probably means I should because I don't want to give this up. Therefore, I ought to give it up. That's sort of the thinking we get into. People who like to have a certain food limitation. And I don't just mean the craziness about gluten, which is its own problem. And I know you're probably some of you, oh, yeah, but you don't read the science. Shut up. <laughs> Doctrines of demons. <laughs> Deceitful spirits, pretentious liars, heavy on the pretentious. Um, so don't give me any noise afterwards. Who forbid marriage and join absence from foods. Religion is not the path to answer the question, how ought we behave? Or tight religion that gives up, that sacrifices, because there's something else that God did with that food and with that marriage. That food and that marriage he gave to man. Because abstinence from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Primarily Christians, right? Those who believe and know the truth are Christians. God's gifts of food. Now, a non-believer can go to McDonald's, that blessed place, and order a Big Mac, if you like Big Macs, and enjoy it. A Christian, he can be confident that his God made the things in a big back that man would enjoy them. He's not just got, I'm hungry, I like Big Macs. I'm hungry, I like Big Macs, and my God is good. That that's connected to this. My religion is that God created this to be received with thanksgiving by the believers. Not that the believers would be the ones, you know, kicking various foods to the curb and saying, no, none of that. We're, we're denying ourselves. Now, most of you are fine with marriage. I don't think there's probably any. But there's some people who start to deny God's gift of marriage. Everything, verse 4, created by God is good. This is something that ought to be on every refrigerator in the world. Usually I think there are dietary warnings on the fridges. I don't have one of those, obviously. 
but I have a fridge, but I don't have the, the warnings. Don't go in there. Don't eat the mayo. You should have one nice big print. Everything created by God is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For then it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. Everything. And some of you are mentally scratching things off those. Oh, heaven. Jesus didn't know about this, and Paul didn't know about that. And Monsanto. Dang it! Monsanto. GMOs. How can you go to heaven if you ingest a GMO? You go fat and sassy. That's how you go. <laughs> Waddling a bit, but you, you, you go. Everything created by God is good. You say, some of the things were created by man. Look, don't get, don't get whiny. Just go with it. Quit fighting St. Paul. You can write your own epistle to Timothy if you want. We're trying to figure out how we ought to live. We know that Lord's in our life. Lord's obedience to a God requires you discover things that you probably didn't think of yourself. If you could just be trusted to make up your own rules for how you were going to live, why are we here? You can't. None of us are bright enough. We've got to go to a God and his holy apostles and his son to get some direction. And you know you're going to run into something you don't agree with. You've heard this talk about wives submit yourselves to your husbands as to the Lord. And you've heard some, usually some misogynist throwback like myself, um, suggest that we discover where submission exists is not where the wife agrees with the husband. Now, I don't want you to dwell on that because you might start throwing things and, and we, we don't want to go there, but same is true with God. If you already thought it's great to love people, and you're always, you know, hugging everybody. Well, good. I'm glad you're a kind and loving person. The Lord is going to say something to you at some point that you don't. You wouldn't have planned life that way. You get caught up. You might be a loving person, but you might be full of anxieties. And this is this is another gift to you moms. Quit it. You can't save us. We're all going to die. Nobody gets out of here alive. You know that. Don't worry. You don't cook for nutrition. You cook for enjoyment. French fries. I'm sorry, Yuki. French fries. Onion rings. All things received with thanksgiving. I'm sure St. Paul would have written you if only he had known GMOs and Monsanto were going to be a problem. Except when people start messing with the food. Adding spices and stuff. Now, we're supposed to, when it says, verse 6, if you put these instructions before the brethren, as I have just done, you will be a good minister of Christ Jesus. Nourished on the words of the faith and of the good doctrine which you have followed. And you're going to yourself, 
I know Evans' doctrine was part of it, and he's a nut. And then every other church in town, they're kind of nutty too. Which doctrine? When he says, the good doctrine you have followed? The words of faith? These instructions? How do I... We've got this... Uh, This first, we said, okay, first off, we're not going to go towards denial theology. That you deny the good things in this world. God made good things to give to people because he's a good God. It's one of the standard proofs philosophically that he's not only powerful, but that he's benevolent. And you're running around with a long stick, punching it away from you, going, nope, not allowed marriage, not allowed gluten. No sex, no flavor. God said, you know, no, shut up. You, you, you can enjoy that life. But that's not right. That's not how we ought to live. And the oughtness of what we... Is, is, is that we should be following this good doctrine. Undescribed. He does it. There is no passage in the Bible that adequately, like the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians, lists the doctrines. Churches have to get together. You know, real churches, not like ours, but... Churches have to get together and let you know what the statement of faith is going to be. What's your creed, what's your confession, what's your book of church order, what it is. No, those are probably handy. What is? We're up against it. We want to know how we ought to live. Well, what's the good doctrine? What am I supposed to be nourished by? What am I supposed to have followed? What's it look like? Come on, give me some hints. Paul's talking these general vague terms. You ever notice that back with the passage on the bishops? And it says, let the bishop be blameless. Ah, oh. What am I going to, what, about what? You want to know what I'm supposed to do. Well, one, you don't draw lines that keep you from enjoying the good things that God has made. Now you're, going to, you're still saying in the back of your mind, he got something wrong there because, you know, that's not, boy, if I let my teenage son have that verse, all things are made to be received with thanksgiving, consecrated by the word of God and prayer. You know, I'm happy to let a, non, a believing child at 14, heavy into puberty, Take up whatever activity he wants to take up in prayer. Happy to have him take before the Lord his enjoyment that he's planning. Lord, I'm really looking forward to lying to my parents about this beer. And dating this non-believing girl. And all the rest. You know, once you start laying your plans before God, laying your enjoyments before God, the way you think of them, not the way he thinks of them, but the way you think. He gave you marriage. He gave you food. He didn't give you gluttony and immorality. As soon, and, and, but, but the path to no gluttony and immorality is one, not standing on the law, or then standing on a Pharisaic extension of the law. It's by knowing you're standing in this Christ and petitioning, thanking God for what you've been given. The integrity of a person, oh, they may still sin. 
They may still sin, but it's far less demonic than the rule-based denial faith that is laid out by these pretentious liars. Let them try to consecrate their freedom. We're supposed to put these instructions before the brethren. I want to know what the instructions really... Can you tidy this up? Can we, can we have some takeaway points that over lunch today, after we're done talking how much we love our moms, we can talk about the sermon? Have nothing to do with godless and silly myths. Oh, there's a hint there. No godless ones and no silly ones. Myths. We're not, uh, do you ever feel that you, do you have any hard time recognizing silly things? Do you watch TV? I watch TV, so not a lot, but I, I do I watch some TV. So I've seen some commercials, which scares me about the state of American mind, that they will be told this about the Fuller Brush Company, or what are the, some of the other things that the, uh, what's her name, the screechy uh, pan lady? Kathy Mitchell, who will tell you about her copper, which is, means copper colored, copper pot that will do amazing things for food. And they lie to us constantly. And we're silly, and we believe silly things. We don't, we're Christians here, folks. Just like God gave you the good things in life, especially for you, that the Big Mac was there. Especially for you, stupid is not there. Don't be silly. Don't embarrass the living God. He was manifest, vindicated, seen, preached, believed on, taken up, and you're believing what you read in some Christian book about some little boy going to heaven and seeing whatever he saw. Some of you are old enough to remember Pastor Roland Buck out of Boise, Angels on Assignment. He went to God's records room, which had file cabinets. God's records room in heaven had file cabinets. This was the 80s. Computers weren't big yet for God. It was a very orderly file room. I think he had the angels wearing corduroys, which is sensible. We had uh, a woman come into our Bible Christian bookstore and scream at us for not carrying that book. Can you imagine not carrying angels on assignment where he and his dog Queenie, a great Dane, had seen angels who told them and took them to heaven and showed them all these wonderful things. He wrote a book. And he'd be given 120 prophecies that he had to put in an envelope and he could not show to anyone until after they came to pass. At which time, when he opened it, after he died, they opened it and there was nothing in it. And a woman came in and yelled at us. A Christian woman of, of, of a church here in town yelled at us for not carrying this great man of God's book. Now, 
You say, Evan, should you mock? Yes, I should mock the silly and the godless. Because you're not allowed to be listening. You're supposed to have nothing to do. Godless. There was nothing about the Lord Jesus Christ and angels on assignment. There was no direction to please him. There was no greater understanding of the gospel. There was just self-aggrandizement. I'm not to do that, and I'm to train myself in godliness. Now, I wanted to point this out. It's kind of an aside. I, I mentioned earlier how a lot of Christianity starts by saying, you want religion? You want some oughtness? Let's go find the place you don't want to give things up, and let's make you give them up. Diet issues sexual issues, whatever the, you know, kind of denial is the best thing for Christians. And some kind of Christians like that, and they fall for that. But other kind of Christians, and this is probably, you'd say, we're not those kinds of Christians. I've been to the pastor's house. The thing's like a chimney. People smoking cigars and things, eating french fries. Because there's another side to this problem. We're not about no denial. We're about knowing what our God wants. We're about knowing what, because train yourself in godliness, the end of verse 7. Then he says, for while bodily training is of some value, and some texts say of little value, Godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So, sometimes when we're told in the evangelical world that we're not going to be Pharisees, we're not going to be into legalism, and pretty soon you have head mics on the pastors and Hawaiian shirts untucked, people into marriage seminars in Boise, just riotous living. People, you know, really, people getting caught up in living all these physical Epicurean joys as if that was the Christian life. Proving that we've got this sweet gig from God. We get to drink, we get to smoke, we get to chase our wives around the table. Your bodily situations, yes, they have some value. Have you ever, any of you been to CrossFit? I want to see some hands. You're into CrossFit? You're godless infidels. Um, Boise. Boise. It just it goes without saying. I mean, some kind of crime against. They really work out in CrossFit. I mean, you really work out in CrossFit. I haven't even, I haven't even thought in those directions in decades. So it's a different world from me. And there's, there are people who get really benefited by it. You probably have met some that are almost evangelistic about CrossFit. Like, you get to know Jesus or CrossFit. Either one will do. <laughs> Vegans do it too. Bodily trainings of some value. The warning is, when you get set at liberty by Jesus Christ, just like your 14-year-old son needs to be get on his knees and thank God for his plans about his freedom in Christ, so ought you, as an adult, sit there and say, but this was given to me, like everything, for ordinate placement. 
I need to not know what I ought, just ought to do, but how much I ought. How much is, well, you've read that great section in Paralandra where, where uh, uh, Ransom uh, has this fruit from a tree he's never seen before, and it's almost, you know, opiate-like reaction, just a complete overwhelming of his senses. And there was nothing wrong with it. And he thought about having another. And he realized for a moment, in a moment, that how vulgar that was. That you realize just because you may, and it's not wrong, just because good things are available, like fitness, good things are available like food you enjoy, good things are available like uh, good wine. We don't become believing that, we don't start believing that our Christian life is made up of that freedom. Jesus Christ makes up our Christian life. Godliness is a value in every respect, more for your physical well-being, this life, right? Promise the present life and the life to come. When I concentrate on godliness, you're doing far more for your health than your sit-ups, than your diet choices, than your enjoyments or your limitations. You can limit your life. I don't think there's anything wrong to limit your life. But Jesus Christ has far more for the present life than anything you can do for the body. It only has a little value. This has value in every way. If we, if we manage to give God thanks, if we, if we put it before him in his world, say, thank you, Lord, for making the world this way. I can't thank him for that which he did not give. Because he not just gave sex, he gave marriage. Thank him for both. The saying is sure and worthy of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hopes set on the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. To this end we toil and strive. I want you to see how many things. The saying is sure, full acceptance, you'll be a good minister, expressly says. There's some definites here that, that what you see back in that red portion that was the hymn, he was manifested in the flesh. If you stand in front of the mirror at home this afternoon, hold these notes up, Look yourself in the eye and say, he was manifested in the flesh. Vindicated in the spirit. Seen by angels. Preached among the nations. Believed on in the world. Taken up in glory. This is the mystery of our religion. This is the impetus. Full acceptance. Sure sayings. To this end we toil and strive because we have our hopes set on the living God. Not because you have your hopes set in the church or all the cool people you know there 
or the degree of allowances you were given to do things the way you want to do them by whatever group allowed you to do them, but because you've met Jesus Christ and he was manifested in the flesh. He was preached, when it says preached among the nations, right there in the middle. That is the, when Paul talks about the mystery of the uh, hidden for ages in Ephesians, that's what he's talking about. Christ preached to the Gentiles. That's the mystery. How Your faith, you are Gentiles, most of you, your faith saved you because this mystery came to pass in first century Palestine. And when we say it, we're making that claim of our ability to stand before God on the basis of Christ's death and resurrection. Believe without a bit of Judaism in us. Without any attempt to keep the Jewish law. Just freely coming to Christ through faith. We toil and strive for this because our hope is set on the living God. Then he goes to verse 11, command to teach these things. These things. One of the, I, I probably shouldn't be allowed the, uh, the quality in my programs to bold words. It probably, it's probably something unrighteous about messing with the text. But I did. Made some things red, some things bold. I'm trying to draw your attention to it. When I start changing the words, then you could be concerned. But command and teach these things. Oh, you don't have to agree. But I get to tell you that you gotta. You don't have to. Let no one despise your youth. I, I can't apply that anymore. I used to be able to. Some of you are young. Many of you are young. You get the mystery of our religion clear in your head. And like Timothy, a young man, apostolic delegate, you're being sent out to both live, and it's not just tell people off, because, you know, we've got a lot of people who tell people off. Uh, you know, it's very easy, once you get a microphone, to um, be pleased with the sound of your own voice, and you get to talk and say whatever you ought to do every week, and pretty soon you got inconsistency in life. Really, really we need people, as Christians, living this way. Living in the religion, the mystery of our religion. Let no one despise your youth, but set the believers... Oh, there it is. But set the believers an example in speech and conduct. And then he describes the speech and conduct. Love, in faith, in purity. Now, midway through this, I was saying that we don't have... Paul landing on you with what is the dot? What's the what are the points you got to get across? The points are sort of floating out there, and some sort of you pick them up, you pick them up. Uh, okay, not that legalism, not this thing here, not too much allowance in your what you grant yourself in liberty. I go back to the passage on the left hand side in First Timothy. Uh, um, that's not thirteen. I believe it is one three. There was a missing colon there. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, this is right at the beginning of the book, three verses in, to remain at Ephesus that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. That's part of the command. He's still on those themes, how you ought to live in the household of faith. 
nor occupy themselves with myths and endless genealogies, just like the godless and silly myths, which promote speculations rather than the divine training that is in faith, rather than what we ought to be doing. Phrases like, rather than the divine training that is in faith, there's a suggestion that it's ought. And we could spend our time on eschatology, we could spend our time on do animals go to heaven? What else do you care about? Um, stuff? You got all sorts of unproductive speculations we could be involved with. But God wants us to be training in something we ought, which is in faith. And then he tells you in verse 5, this is helpful because you would have read through Timothy 1 before you read through Timothy 4, 3 and 4. Whereas the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So back here in chapter 4, verse 12, be an example in speech and conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. This is, well, you say, well, what? I don't understand. What don't you understand about love? There's an awful lot of scripture about love. There's an awful lot of scripture about faith. Try out Hebrews for a while. Pure hearts, good conscience, sincere faith, that's the aim of our charge. That's how we, we measure this love, is love that issues from having these things corrected in our lives. That's where we should, that you say, what is the oughtness this morning? The oughtness is to go home and say, am I pure in heart? of good conscience and a sincere faith, and his love issuing from it. Because I'm supposed to be an example talking about that and living like that. That's what he said, right? Set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, by these things. These things ought to be what, oh, hey, I noticed that you were loving and peaceful and pure, full of integrity, sincere faith, and he helps on this, verse 13, till I come attend to the, it's not like this in the actual Bible, I just made it like that, public reading of scripture, to preaching, to teaching. This is what you ought to, practically what you ought to do, what we're doing this morning, right? Well, we have a Bible study. That the scriptures be read publicly. So what is the, uh, that I could make sense of because scripture is written by apostles and prophets. And you over here with this bigger podium explaining. We, we get it from that passage I spoke on in Nehemiah 8. I give you the verse here on the side. And they read from the book, from the law of God clearly. And they gave the sense so that people understood the reading. The, the, the Jews and the Christians have always read the scriptures and then someone gave the sense. That's what we're trying to do. Preachers all over the country this morning trying to give the sense of what they read in the scriptures. So you can say, okay, I'm catching this on. I'm writing these things down. I got, I got love that issues from a pure heart, a, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. And um, it's in love, faith, and purity. And it's biblical. Right? There's a, 
Because you're... Have you ever met loopy people? Friends, dear people, who just, you know, a few bricks shy of a full load. And they, they're just all emotional about the love and the faith and the... They don't seem to have any concreteness. This is why the public reading of scripture to the preaching to the teaching is critical. Not all of us think clearly and could be just handed the Christian life and say, is this the opening door to the cult? No. But we have been given objective sources of knowing. The body, in the multitude of counselors there is wisdom. Talking to your friends about the word of God. But the word of God that it be interpreted, that it come up, that it be taught to keep us from silliness. Okay, it was a warning earlier, right? You were told not to get involved in silliness and godlessness. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given to you by prophetic utterance, when the council of elders laid their hands upon you. Practice these duties, devote yourself to them, so that all may see your progress. I want you to always break these sentences apart. Don't neglect the gift you have. Got that? I don't know if you got a gift. Check. But don't neglect it. Timothy was told, probably had a temptation. I don't know what it was. Probably had a temptation to not do it. As much as whatever he was doing. Paul knew him well. Get back to it. Practice these duties. Devote yourself to them. One of the basic things that keeps kids in Christian homes from walking in the light as he is in the light is because they don't see any integrity in their parents. Parents believe, the parents recommend, but they do not... have a life that the both children especially or any of their friends see their progress. You practice, you devote so that all may see your progress. Take heed to yourself and to your teaching. Knowing what the Christian life is supposed to be is not good enough. Knowing what the Christian life is supposed to be and being that Christian life is good enough. Other people see your progress. You're supposed to take heed to you and to your teaching. They should match. You will live like what you actually believe at home. I mean, church life is, is different. Everybody knows we're lying. But, you know, at home, the way you speak to your wife, the way you speak to your children, the way you kneel before the living God, those things are the result of what you believe. Take heed to yourself and to your teaching. They ought to match, and they ought to be right. Okay, you have two tasks. You ought to have integrity, and you ought to be correct. Because your life will be the result of what you believe. You cannot avoid it. Your heart faith is what you will live. All faith is not real without works. And you will work. And you will be angry, and you will be annoyed, you will be bitter, and you will be, you know, awful. Because you're an awful person. You have awful beliefs. Your Christ was not manifested, vindicated, seen, preached, believed, taken up. 
You have not knelt before that. It says here, hold to that, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. It seems it's not only a matter of integrity, the claims of your belief, when truly believed, if they provide you with salvation, the saved life in this age and in the age to come. Not just, you say, well, I don't know if I have salvation in the age to come yet. Have you seen your life saved here yet? Is the grace of Jesus Christ evident in you? Here, to people who love and care for you and will give you the most excuses possible. Because they love you as a family member or a friend, but they do not see your progress. If you get this right, you will save both yourself and those that hear you. Sometimes we get saved at one stage of our lives and we go off into some stupid and we teach the stupid. And we, we're not saving anybody else. We happen to be saved. Does what you preach save the lost? Um, I think I've mentioned this before, but uh, when I was little, um, it's a good illustration. Corey Ten Boom was at our place. This is about, about 10. And she was giving a series of messages um, in town. This is in Annapolis. And she mentioned to my dad that she was concerned because no one seemed to ever get saved. And dad said to her, well, Corey, you tell a lot of great stories. You never tell them the gospel. Everybody was just riveted, always riveted with what she had to say. It was amazing. They didn't know what to do. <laughs> she had, she was definitely a Christian, and she had been wonderfully saved, and now she was talking about stuff that wasn't the faith, wasn't in love, faith, and purity, an example of what we go to about Jesus Christ manifested in the flesh. Are you ready with the gospel Sometimes in church with somebody you kind of were wondering whether they're even a Christian. You want to be sure that you don't start coasting into a Christian life of silliness or godlessness, but training yourself in godliness and being in the gospel. Well, that's the bottom of the passage. It goes on from there. You can read on from there. Train yourself to find the oughtness for the Christian, how you ought to live in the household of faith. Practice it. Devote yourself to it in such a way that other people will see it. Let's thank God. Dear Lord, we're grateful. You are good to us. And that kindness, Lord, is such that we can sometimes innocently or foolishly wander off into our lives without thinking of practicing our faith before you, training in godliness, putting it first, because the great thing that is the mystery of our religion. Remind us of how great it is that we would take this oughtness up correctly, that we would be ordinate about everything we pick up, we'd check ourselves with others, we'd sit under the teaching of 
of people who are practiced in the faith. We'd ask that you keep us full of integrity and full of your son. And in his name we pray. Amen.